Welcome to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies. Well, these are parts of it we have read. I am Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz. It's the big 1-8. Mm-hmm. Podcast is now as many episodes as you need to vote. Mm, oh, Michael. Today we are... It's the holidays. Did you get anything, did you get anything that you uh, wanted for the holiday? For Christmas? Uh... I mean, I got things that I needed, like gloves and whiskey. Uh, mm-hmm. I also got uh, Alien Isolation for the Nintendo Switch, which I'm actually probably going to talk about this episode because it ends up having a lot to talk or a lot to do with uh, this particular article in a weird way. I knew that you were playing that, and mm-hmm. uh, as I was reading this, I was like, I bet Michael is going to have a lot to say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, for my, uh, I you know, I have like a little work Secret Santa thing. And uh, for that, my Secret Santa gave me a book about the housing crisis and then gave me a bo- uh, bottle of Jack Daniels oh, to, okay. to drink while reading about the housing crisis. So that's, that's <laughs> what I got for the holiday. Um, yeah, today we are reading, we're, we're doing, because I think we did this last year too, mm-hmm. on, on this month um, or, or somewhere around the holidays here. Um we did a uh, essay instead of a book. Uh, our plan for the next book is still coin-operated Americans, Carly Kasurik's, uh book from University of Minnesota Press from a few years ago. Um, we're still going to do that. It's going to be our January book, but because the holiday time is so compressed for everybody, um, for this episode we are doing um, a, a classic of game studies literature, mm-hmm. an essay. It's called Game Design as Narrative Architecture, by Henry Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna. There's gonna be a little link in the description below to find this, um, but and the link will be to Henry Jenkins's like faculty website. Uh, but um, you can find this just by googling it anywhere. This is really one of the big texts of game studies, and as far as I know, it was initially published in uh, first person new media as story performance in game in 2006. Um, which was like an MIT Press edited volume. I think that's the first place this showed um, up. I, I've seen, I, I was looking this up trying to figure out where it landed as well. And I think it was actually published as a standalone in like 2002 or something oh, ridiculous. I didn't know that. Which is, uh, yeah, no, it's it's really, I, I again, I, I'm having a hard time getting a confirmation on that, but I'm seeing people dating it to then. Hmm. And that makes it really interesting because... Uh, the the article ends up feeling a lot more ahead of its time if you put it in 2002. Yes, it does. And I feel like, uh, weirdly enough, um, that the article has quite a bit of like, well, we'll get into it. But I think that it is still surprisingly contemporary feeling. Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of that has to do with it being a methods piece, right? Yes. This, this, this is a piece that is explicitly a short uh, which is great. <laughs> I, I like a, a good short article, yeah. but it is explicitly about ways of approaching games and game studies, um, in a way of reading text and understanding how texts work. Um, and so, for that reason, like you know, sometimes you read a methods article and you're like, this just doesn't, you know, this is not helpful <laughs> today. <laughs> like if we were reading a methods article that was about like. How to do social science in the Soviet countryside. 
that would be very <laughs> cool, but it would not be very helpful because we, you know, those political and social conditions don't exist anymore in the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Um, but video games do exist. <laughs> yeah, they do. And, and so uh, so it, it, it still feels pretty lively. Um, this is not a text that I... I'd read this before, but this is not a text that I have been in conversation with very much uh, historically in, in my work. I don't really write about narrative all that often. I don't really write all that often. Like, I feel like if you buy into pieces of this article, you gotta, you kind of got to go a little bit deeper. Um, and I say that having written about Bioshock 2 and, like, how Rapture space is created and narrative is created there and something more than narrative is created there, um, having written and published about adaptations in evocation specifically. So reading this now, I was like, oh, I, I definitely should have been, like, more <laughs> fine-tuned dealing with this text. It would have been very helpful for me. It would have been very uh, useful to have in my apparatus. So lesson learned. Sometimes you got to read the classics really carefully to, to mm-hmm. figure out where you're going. But so I, I, I've read this before. I'd read this, you know, during graduate school. But uh, Michael, had you had you um, read this piece before? Yes, I had read this, and um, it had not really stuck in my mind, which is weird because, like you, I read this now. Uh, see, I when, when would I have first read this? Probably in grad school when I was uh, just sort of casting around looking for interesting game studies pieces. Uh, at the time, I was, I think, considering putting together a kind of first-year course on game studies as uh, a kind of mod- model for rhetorical acts and, like, composition. That was because I taught comp um, in grad school. That was sort of the angle I was trying to work. Mm-hmm. So I I know that I read this for that course, and yet none of it hung in my mind. Like it, I, I guess like my mom was just like, "Yep, okay, that's interesting." Like I think some of some of my undergrads will understand that, mm-hmm. and that was it. I ended up not teaching the course, so I had no reason to to return to this. And then I was reading it this time, and I was like, "Oh." It would have been really helpful for me to cite some of this when I was talking about the like the the article that I co-wrote with um, my colleague Matthew Harrison on Hamlet video game adaptations. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was like, this, this would have been extremely helpful, actually, for us to have cited uh, in that piece, uh, just because it makes very clearly and concisely a lot of the points that uh, we were trying to make. Well, that's a, that's a lesson for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, Uh Oh, this is something I, a lesson I learned over and over again, which means I perhaps am not learning the lesson, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is that that um, you know it's beneficial to go back and like cast through the classics of the field because I, sometimes, not always, but sometimes they are classics for a reason, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes they just do the work you need them to do. Um, and the other thing is you gotta read more carefully. You know, I read probably. 200 times more carefully for this podcast than I do in my day-to-day life. Because normally, you know, I'm trying to read through a lot of material, figure it out, figure out how it all fits together, and then and then write, you know, and, and try to make that happen. But for this podcast, you know, I really sit down and I'm like, pop, 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 going through every single little piece and making sure I understand it, taking notes on, you know, a substantial amount of it. And, uh... You know, I don't know what the lesson I'm learning there is other than I can't do that all the time. <laughs> so maybe if I want to write about something, I should just put it on the show. And then that will force me to do that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, 
This article begins with uh, some of the most contested stuff we have ever seen. Um, and it's contested because this is being published and it's appearing um, in the moment where like ludology versus narratology, which we've talked about a bunch of different times here on the show, but ludology versus narratology is like the debate mm-hmm. in, in game studies. And more than that, this is like the mythologizing of that debate in game studies, meaning that like the position of ludology in the position of narratology is are well are uh, defined enough to stand in for like a big body of thought well like one of the first phrases that jenkins uses in this article is blood feud mm-hmm. right just and you like, wrote in your notes blood feud blood feud <laughs> blood feud blood right. feud exactly because it's just like the article starts and it's like there is a blood feud forming in game studies or something like that uh mm-hmm. Uh, actually, so just just to read this, uh, the relationship between games and story remains a divisive question among game fans, designers, and scholars alike. At a recent academic game studies conference, for example, a blood feud threatened to erupt between the self-proclaimed ludologists who wanted to see the focus shift onto the mechanics of gameplay and the narratologists who were interested in studying games alongside other storytelling media. So blood feud, that's a pretty, pretty charged term to use so it, it gives you a sense i guess of uh the stakes that people at least felt like they were working with here i i uh really hope that like a pig got loose and it got into the <laughs> conference room with the ludologists and they're like well we got this pig i guess this is our pig now and the narratologist came over they're like we want our pig back and then you know push comes to shove you got a blood feud <laughs> You have like you have the pair of young lovers on either side who, uh, you know, star-crossed all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. Also, I just uh, double-checked the date on this, and apparently, the hardcover of the book came out in two thousand four. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so two thousand six. Uh, I don't know why I had. Maybe that's uh, a... two thousand six is the paperback. There you go. Mm-hmm. Might be. So anyway, that that is like that places it sort of even more squarely, I think, uh, at this point in time when ludology and narratology is is kind of the debate that is structuring game studies. Yeah. And of course, you know, what we have had in the basically since like post 2010, right, are scholars from the time and then scholars who write around that period basically being like this didn't happen. You know what I mean? I I think that's a fair thing to say. A lot of people say, or basically have kind of um, retroactively said that, you know, because Gonzalo Frasca has the piece, you know, uh, um, that the debate that did not take place or whatever. The Gonzalo Frasca piece is Ludologists Love Stories 2, Notes from a Debate that Never Took Place. So, right, th- this is uh, like, you know, retroactively kind of being like, hey, look. Uh, this was this was more complicated mm-hmm. than we said at the time. But, right, our artifacts from the time period, right, this opening kind of salvo, like you're saying here, Michael, of there is a blood feud between two <laughs> poles, right? And uh, he he cites some ludologists here at the top. So Ernest Adams, Greg Kostikian, uh, Jesper Yule, and uh, Merku Eskalinen. Um the, at least the last one who we can say is like a firm ideological ludologist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he cites them to kind of get the thing, um, get the thing going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so he 
opens up. Actually, do we want to talk about who Jenkins is? We kind of just like jumped into this, and I feel mm. like we have maybe assumed that our listeners know about Jenkins because he is a uh, he is he is a well known figure, a well known scholar. But maybe we need to give some uh, context in terms of who he is and how he's coming at this. Sure. Okay. Do you know anything uh, about him? Well, I mean, he is uh, he is a media studies scholar. Uh, I would say, like, the, the best way of talking about him would be comparative media studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that he is sort of best known for, generally speaking, is taking popular culture very seriously. Um, in, in contrast to kind of the uh, paranoid, skeptical mode of relating to popular culture that uh, a lot of academics inherit from, you know, like Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, Henry Jenkins comes out and he says like hey uh professional wrestling tells us something really interesting about race and masculinity in in america mm-hmm. right like it's not like you know propaganda luring us into believing this or that about about men and masculinity although sometimes it is but like also there are uh weird pushes against that so i mean i I, i'm using this example because again when i was in grad school i taught an essay by him called um never trust a snake which is his argument that uh professional wrestling is soap operas but for men essentially Mm -hmm. Uh, so it becomes about uh, being able to express emotions that are, of course, always sort of couched in terms of, like, rage and rivalry and anger, um, but sort of projecting emotions out in, in a way that is sort of over-the-top and campy and can be related to uh, by men who are not supposed to sort of interface directly with their emotions. Uh, the sort of, like, weirdness and artificiality of professional wrestling uh, allows uh sort of men to uh interface with these kind of heightened melodramatic emotions in in the same way that uh you know women quote unquote right there's there's a not gender essentialist exactly but uh he's he's talking in the language of a particular academic point in time uh the way that uh supposedly women tap into soap operas for kind of those melodramatic narratives mm-hmm so yeah. that's that's kind of like who Henry Jenkins is, a hundred percent. And and I, you know, to even fine grain it a little bit more, right? I think that Henry Jenkins is emblematic of the study of pop culture, kind of post cultural studies. So if if uh, you know cultural studies in the the late seventies through the eighties and into the nineties as a uh, methodological project of looking to pop culture and thinking that it's like important right as you're saying mm-hmm. but uh cultural studies you know based on marxism uh, ex- pretty explicitly right has a very particular view of the relationship between ideology and uh you know popular culture written broadly and then economics right those things are all intimately very related for a um uh, cultural studies person and at the end of the day i think that that cultural studies when you say like capital letters cultural studies um if it abandons marxism then it's it's something else um henry jenkins is uh, you know kind of that something else to some degree um mm-hmm. because i don't think he is particularly a marxist in any way um and he is much more about describing the conditions uh under which the thing uh, as you're saying michael like under uh, the conditions under which it appears 
and then is thought about and received and then distributed across channels of, of society. Um, and so like as his work went in, so he, so he kind of did game studies in the late 90s. He did uh, From Barbie to Mortal Kombat, Gender and Computer Games, an edited volume that is uh, very important to the field that we might get to at some point. I think our likelihood of doing an edited volume is very low, but if we did do one, it would probably be that book. Um, but then he wrote two books that are like big, big, big for media studies, and uh, that's Convergence Culture and then Spreadable Media. Um, and both of those are about ways that pieces of media or ideas in media um, or concepts in media, and I mean that as broadly as, as you can think, how they transpose themselves and move across culture. Um, and so what we're going to talk about a little bit in this article is how he, he basically says, like, look, there's an ecology of, of what he's calling transmedia. There's an ecology of that and trying to say that uh, games are somehow wholly separated from that. It doesn't make any sense to him. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what both of those books are about. Right. It, to some degree is is what is the ecology of games um, and, and what or not games, but what is the ecology of media? Um, and what does it mean for that ecology to operate? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's Jenkins uh, to give you some idea of how he's going to come in on on this question of ludology and narratology. Yeah. And he was at MIT for a number of years. Um, or he, he was at MIT for a long time. Now he is at USC mm -hmm. um, doing doing his stuff. So this this is interesting, Michael, and it, I, I think that there is something that um, something that Jenkins is solidifying for us here that I think is really interesting, um, and that that was not clear to me to begin with. So he says here, and we're not going to read every sentence of this thing, but this is helpful. So he quotes a bunch of like ludologists, right, or people he's calling ludologists, and he says, um, "I find myself re responding." Uh, so well, let's say this. Here's the Escalinian quote. Quote, outside academic theory, people are usually excellent in making distinctions between narrative drama and games. If I throw a ball at you, I don't expect you to drop it and wait until it starts telling stories. Unquote. Ha 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 ha. So this is Jenkins. I find myself responding to this perspective with mixed feelings. On the one hand, I understand uh, what these writers are writing, arguing against. Various attempts to map traditional narrative structures, hypertext, interactive cinema, nonlinear narrative, onto games at the expense of an attention to their specificity as an emerging mode of entertainment. Uh, you say narrative to the average gamer, and they're apt to imagine something in the order of choose-your-own-adventure book. Um, skipping, skipping, skipping. Uh, skipping, skipping, skipping. Uh, the applica application of film theory to games can seem heavy-handed and literal-minded, often failing to recognize the profound differences between the two media. Yet, at the same time, there's a tremendous amount that game designers and critics could learn through making meaningful comparisons with other storytelling media. Uh, one gets rid of media at a framework as a framework for thinking about games only at one's own risk. Uh, and then he says that there's middle ground between the um, uh, between the ludologist and the narratologist. Mm -hmm. So what I think is interesting here, sorry to read a whole paragraph, but what I think is interesting is that uh, Jenkins put something in perspective for me that I, despite have, reading all this kind of work of the late 90s and early 2000s that I didn't really put together until now, which is that narratology versus ludology Right, if we take that to be like the blood feud, mm -hmm. a lot of the times has been hypertext theorists versus ludology. Yes, it has quite a bit. 
Which is it? And and you know, thinking of it as I was reading this, I was like, oh, that's actually how Arseth puts it too, right? Mm-hmm. Like his uniqueness of games. Most of those examples are, you know, the examples he spends the most time on. Those are hypertext narratives or hypertext, right? Games. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, does that? I I don't know what to do with that necessarily, but I do think it's interesting that very rarely in these game studies texts have we found like the fight being between, say, film theory people and ludologists right or narrative structure film people yeah i was thinking over this and i think at least partly at least partly the beef gets uh formulated in response to hypertext theorists because i think hypertext theorists are going to be the most prone to making uh sort of claims to art if this makes sense Mm -hmm. um so people who are out here making hypertext are not making short films uh Mm -hmm. they're they're writing uh and i think that really in terms of your startup costs it as as uh, someone who who does artistic production being able to write is pretty low um and so i think you and not only is it low right but you can you can write really well Right, that is just a thing that someone can do. Like, obviously, they have to work at it and so on and so forth. Um, But I think uh, because sort of the barrier to entry or, like, the crossover barrier between, let's say, regular fiction and interactive fiction uh, is that, that, like, there's clearly a boundary there, but uh, it doesn't take a lot of, of, like programming knowledge or like capital investment in order to make something that looks like a piece of regular fiction but is also like interactive and therefore has i think fewer hurdles to jump before people start saying like uh and this is something that i think we see uh our seth responding to a lot in his book of like uh you know now the now the uh reader is the author or like the co-creator or something like that does that make Mm -hmm. sense yeah so i think that's part of the one of the reasons why maybe um this blood feud uh, breaks down in the way it does uh, is because with with hypertext and interactive fiction, um, you honestly are much closer producing closer to producing something that is more generically recognizable as something we already consider kind of high art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the distinguishing quality. I, I I mean I guess that's the interesting thing, right? Is that yeah. um, a, a hypertext you know, a piece of fiction, a piece of hypertext fiction is not a ball. Like you can't throw it at me. Right. Right. So like the escalation like idea really breaks down. I think when, you know, when you're throwing me a, a three and a half floppy or whatever. Right. Um, no, es- yeah, no. Escalinen wants to just ins- like he wants to insist that this all comes from like the ball game, right? That that's really where all this starts. And that's sort of the, the claim he is making as a ludologist there. Uh, Whereas, of course, like a hypertext author is probably not going to consider themselves as throwing their readers a ball. They're saying, like, I am sending you a poem, but this poem is going to work in a way that is different from most other poems you have you have seen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um. So the 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 structure of this piece is, is interesting, right? So like, um, Henry Jenkins brings us all together here at the beginning, and we don't have to read all of these, but he gives like five general points that we all have to we we might he says we might all agree on Mm -hmm. here right he says one not all games tell stories and these have full paragraphs but i'm not reading them yeah 
Um, two, many games do have narrative aspirations, right? Not not mm-hmm. every game is is uh, Tetris, right? But the and actually vast just, majority. Oh, sorry, well, go ahead. I was going to say, just to back up, like, one mm-hmm. of the useful compare, like, this is the other thing that, like, the, the ludologists are consistently, like, getting angry about is is the comparisons with other media but i find them very illuminating and in that first one not all games tell stories uh one of the comparisons jenkins makes is like dance as a medium as a genre uh you know the nutcracker is the example he gives that's a particular ballet right a type of dance with a narrative but dance itself does not have to have a narrative Mm -hmm. so not all games have narrative we can basically he's saying you know they're they are similar uh, games and dance are similar in that way yeah it's interesting that at this time so much of the these arguments hinge on um people outside of ludology being like well isn't this like this other thing and ludologists just being like no it is not mm-hmm. like that that it really is because I, I think that yeah that's a ballet is a great example yes right of like uh, it has there's a spectrum of narrative aspiration here mm-hmm. and some double down on it and some don't and yet we can recognize and analyze both equally you can you can analyze the dance of the nutcracker and talk about it as a dance thing as a dance mm-hmm. <laughs> um, without sacrificing like you know your capability of speaking to ballet as a whole right I guess, but the ludologists would would at the time, and the way they're being talked about, and the way that they represent themselves, honestly, would have you have you kind of believe something different, right? So, uh, not all games have narratives. Some of them do have narrative aspirations. That's number two. Mm-hmm. But, but sometimes they're pretty weak. Like that is, we can admit that. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> that's something J- like uh, Jenkins is okay with admitting. Uh, and then. The third point was that narrative analysis need not be prescriptive, uh, even if some uh, narratologists do seem to be advocating for games to pursue uh, particular narrative forms. Mm-hmm. And Janet Murray gets—is she in your in your yes. version of it? Okay. Yes, yes, no. Janet Murray is given an example. Uh, he uh, Jenkins calls her the most oft-cited example um, for someone who advocates for games to pursue particular narrative forms, which I think is an interesting characterization of Murray because I didn't get that sense from her so much in Hamlet on the Hollow Deck that she was being prescriptive. Yeah, the, yeah. I also thought that was really weird. So, so people can go back and listen to our very long uh, episode on Hamlet on the Holodeck uh, if you want to hear this vast discussion. But, uh, but yeah, I thought like the way I read Janet Murray, and I think it was some of the the best stuff in that book is like pure description, mm-hmm. in the sense of like this is what if we pay attention to games and we pay attention to like narrative within the relationship of what software allows you know uh, narrative to do then this is all the stuff we could be doing right it's like yeah no i didn't feel like she was being prescriptive at all like the my favorite parts of that book are where she's kind of being sort of speculative and like where she imagines like that bizarre casablanca game yeah where she and she where she basically in some ways right ends up anticipating some of the stuff jenkins is talking about here because she says like clearly a casablanca game is not going to be a straight-up adaptation of the film casablanca so i'm going to adapt the world (laughs) yeah Right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so in his examples here, right, The Sims, Black and White, Majestic, Shinmu, all of those are that kind of thing, right? World simulation games that mm-hmm. where you, you know, in different ways, right, intervene in that world um, and do that kind of stuff. So that's cool. Um, 
He says here, in order to do that, game designers who are most often schooled in computer science or graphic design need to be retooled in the basic vocabulary of narrative theory. All right. Oof. Oof. Um, uh, number four, the experience of playing games can never simply be reduced to the experience of a story. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting, though, that to think about like fan communities where that is 100% the most important part. Like I, the number of times I've had people uh, talk to me about the gameplay of Near Automata is close to zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like I don't think anyone's can. It's perfectly fine. I'm not. I'm not mad about that. You know, yeah. the, the game's like the way it's played. But um, there are obviously places where narrative investment overwhelm anything like. Uh, uh, mechanical joy <laughs> yeah no that's uh that's that's a very funny example because i have a piece coming out in a, a while it's an edited collection so who the heck knows when it'll actually be published but i end up talking about near automata at the end <laughs> and i'm in reflect like the second you said it i was reflecting and i'm like yeah i don't really talk about the gameplay at all <laughs> Uh, I don't think anyone does. I, I recently read a, a really great final chapter for someone's book. I don't, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to blow up anyone's spot here. But the book's on out. It's coming out in 2020. When it comes out, I'll promo it. Uh, but their last chapter is about uh, or uses that game as their uh, uh, example and very little discussion of gameplay. Mm-hmm. Wonderful chapter. Amazing uh, chapter. But anyway, uh, five. If some games tell stories, they are unlikely to tell them in the same ways that other media tell stories. So all these, all five of these are, um, are are things we could all agree on. Mm-hmm. You know, he's trying to, he's, he's, uh, Henry Jenkins is doing a Henry Jenkins, he's bringing everyone together to then uh, do something with what we all agree with. Um, and that's introducing a third term. Yep. Spatiality. Dun, dun, dun. Now, I don't, I don't know. You know, just in my brain, narratology, mm-hmm. ludology, spatiality. <laughs> I don't know if that. I think that's a third term for for, the, for those things. But um, basically, he's arguing here for uh, a, an environmental understanding of game design, and he means environment. I think in two different ways, which is pretty interesting, right? One is that it has a context within like a transmedia ecology, right? So there's movies and there's uh, radio plays. I don't know why I went to radio plays, but there's radio plays and there's novels. (laughs) And all these things are floating around in the aether and games are like, you know, assembled out of pieces of of all those things as well as software and things like that. Um, So that's like, you know, that's one part uh, uh, in the sense of like the environment. And the other one is that literally games generate virtual environments that we explore and that does something to the way that narrative functions right and kind of uh, wavers in and out almost um the the first paragraph of that next thing is quote game designers don't simply tell stories they design worlds and sculpt spaces <laughs> right so he says like we should think of and this is just in the paragraph just before that we should think uh, of game designers less as storytellers and uh, more as narrative architects right so the idea is less that so part of the and i think he gets this to this in the next couple paragraphs um part of the weird thing about the like ludologist's understanding of narrative is a very uh odd 
the sort of insistence on the idea that narrative is controlled and controlled yeah. by an author who has kind of final say and who is guiding things at every juncture and uh, almost, uh, I mean, in, in my own notes, I sort of called it a kind of idealism of narrative. Uh, there's mm-hmm. this sense that narrative only exists in the way that it could exist in in the era of like single object like mass produced market uh consumer goods if this makes sense at all yeah right like like the way that the ludologists are talking about narrative is kind of like well it's not narrative like a tv show doesn't have a narrative if there's not a showrunner yeah Right, just this very strange stuff uh, that they are, like, a lot of assumptions they are making about, like, what makes a narrative a valid narrative or a valid story. Um, And so Jenkins is saying, you know, the storytelling um, or, like, stories are not always things that we are getting from a single person, from an auteur, or from, like, you know, someone whispering to us at the fireside, uh narratives or stories are things that we pick up from environments and that uh when when we think about game designers as narrative architects uh he is asking us to consider how uh games even if they don't have uh narrative aspirations 100% of the time can be structured in such a way to uh provide context or pretext or some idea of of a story of things happening so he talks about like monopoly as a board game right which has very little in terms of narrative uh in in like a traditional sense but nevertheless has this kind of skin of fiction around it that we are all like scrabbling property owners trying to price each other out of existence yeah. Um, he also talks about uh, Disneyland, right? Um, or, or Disney theme parks. He, he's quoting this person, uh, Don Carson, uh, who was a senior show designer for Walt Disney Imagineering. So he's an Imagineer, right? And yeah. uh, and apparently, I, I want to note this, apparently yeah. this is the guy who comes up with the phrase environmental storytelling. Yes. Um, I did know that. Or, or not that it was Carson, but I did know that it comes out of that trajectory. Um because a lot of these people, especially, or not people, but scholars, right, around this time period, and especially people people who are writing about MUDs and MMOs, they really latch on to that um, uh, in order to talk about, you know, because, you know, it's hard to talk about the narrative of EverQuest without doing that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like there's a whole lot of explicit narrative going on uh, moment to moment, right? Dialogue or anything like that or, or exposition. Um, but yeah, so Carson says, quote, The story element is infused into the physical space a guest walks or rides through. It is the physical space that does much of the work of conveying the story that the designers are trying to tell. Armed only with their knowledge of the world and those visions collected from movies and books, the audience is ripe to be dropped into your adventure. The trick is to play on those memories and expectations to heighten the thrill of venturing into your created universe. End quote. And so, yeah, so, so, so like you're saying, Jenkins is basically saying, look... This is not just how Disney World works. This is how all narrative works. Mm-hmm. Right? That it, it's about creating conditions under which previous memories and previous associations can be called upon. Um, and it's also about uh, developing those memories and adding on to them through constructed space. Right? Mm-hmm. Through the thing that's in front of you. Um, and I, I mean, it's... Yes, like I think this is just correct. Um, mm-hmm. If you're gonna, you know, you, you're asking me to pick my 
like narrative theory. Um, you know, I think this is pretty much right, especially at the the end of the 20th and all of the 21st centuries we have experienced it so far, right? I mean, the new Star Wars trilogy, right? And especially the Star Wars like side things, so like Solo, right? Mm-hmm. They just exist to have you be like, this is an interesting little story, but isn't it cool how it connects to all this other stuff I already know? Mm-hmm. Look at all of the familiar stuff that is being recontextualized. Baby Yoda. He a baby now. Yep. Will it grow up to be Big Yoda? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, apparently not. That's what they're telling me. But can you trust him? You can't. Not until the thing comes out. Probably right. get aged in a carbolic chamber. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um. But But yeah, so like this is, you know, this is the way that... that it's interesting to see um, Jenkins be the person to get here, right? And, and I think the way that he sees his path here is that, one, like you said earlier, he's paying attention to pop culture. He's paying attention to the way that people actually experience and then build upon their, you know, their nerd obsessions, right? I mean, Jenkins writes about Star Wars and Star Trek and, and all of those things, right? Especially Star Trek, which is basically kept alive in in heart and spirit, you know, like someone memorizing the Bible yeah, um, by a group of fans for years and years and years, you know, in these kind of up and downs when there is no uh, new content being created. Um, they are creating new content based on their own memories and their own affects and their own feelings around these these objects and and more importantly those affects and feelings that most of them can agree on right uh which i think is is interesting um quote environmental storytelling creates the preconditions for an immersive narrative experience in at least one of four ways and we're going to talk about those four ways but creates preconditions for an immersive narrative experience um, what, what, what do you think about this in comparison with the, like what the ludologists say, Michael? Um, so, uh, again, like what I said about the ludologists and their idea of narrative is that it's weirdly, uh, beholden to a, a kind of specific and narrow notion of what narrative is and what story is and very much, uh, locked up in the idea of there having to be a storyteller, someone who is in control and that a, a story is not going to be satisfying unless there is someone there to stage manage it essentially and make mm-hmm. sure everything is coherent and makes sense and blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about something like games get funky, right? Like, even if a game is trying to tell you a story, there are always like weird moments of jank or moments of artifice where uh, it presents itself as kind of just this stupid machine trying to tell you a story. And therefore, the ludologists sort of seem to think uh, games should just not even try to tell stories <laughs> because they're always going to point to their, the, the conditions of their own artifice. Um, and what Jenkins is saying is that that's a very narrow understanding of what we do with stories and what we do with stories and games specifically, because what he is arguing is that games and stories are uniquely immersive. That is, uh, what, and we've, we've gone on the record on this podcast before about being like the, the immersion deniers, or at least, uh, (laughs) um, we, we don't think of you and I, uh, Mm -hmm. don't think of immersion 
with regard to games in the way that uh, immersion is used as a uh, a marketing point, right? Like no. this immersive gameplay experience where you just feel like you are part of the game and so on and so forth. Uh, I think you and I, and this is how I am taking uh, Jenkins to mean uh, uh, immersive here. Um, the story is immersive in the sense that uh, I am I have I am willfully like pushing myself into it. I I don't understand the story as something that is being told to me. It's something that I have to sort of feel my way through, and that includes these weird moments where I'm going to find the seams. I'm going to find yeah. the part where the game kind of fizzles a little bit because it's relying on an awkward cutscene or something didn't spawn in the correct way. Um, I know that's going to come. I am just sort of like I I take it. I sort of like note it. Uh, you know, I take a screen cap if it's very funny. Uh, or I tweet about it, and then I just go on my way. Because I am still, like, I am actively kind of, like, clawing my way through this story. <laughs> yeah, it's a very similar uh, feeling to watching a film with uh, very old special effects. Yes, actually. That, that's a very that, like, pro- You know, that looked pretty, that probably looked okay when you were looking at it in 4-3 across the living room at you know, on a 16 inch television. Um, but now, so I was watching uh train spotting yesterday because people in the discord were talking about it and I haven't seen it in probably 10 years. It's on Netflix. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll check that out again. And uh, there's of course the baby on the ceiling. Um, and the baby on the ceiling is like clearly a weird little doll and it doesn't look very good. And, but uh, it, it provides this kind of within the scene you know, it's kind of a hallucination that's happening. And it, it allows you and McGregor, like, to sell this performance of, like, utter horror. Like, you know, just abject, nightmarish heroin withdrawal. Um, and so it, it's a similar moment of, like, like I can recognize. And, and I think people talk about this in the context of, like, suspension of disbelief or something like that. But it's not even that for me. Like, I'm disbelieving the whole time I'm watching it, Right. But it's just to be like, this is something that is happening that I don't think looks very good or I don't think is very convincing, but that provides a platform for something I think is very convincing and very effective. And so then, therefore, like, I'm willing to kind of push through it, like you're saying. I'm, I'm willing to get through the, um, the dialogue box not coming up correctly or uh, the, the uh, NPC spawning in the wall. Um, I'm willing to, to work through that because I am invested in this kind of set of context that I've been put in. Um, and so that's, as I think as you're pointing out here, right, that's spatially navigated, right? Uh, that's happening in a world that I'm putting myself in and making choices within. Um, and, and by spatial, he doesn't, Jenkins doesn't necessarily mean uh, like a 3D world, right? He's just saying that, that within the context of the game, there has been a architecture something is being built out in in kind of virtual or conceptual 3d and we are navigating our way through it um so for example he he cites this piece in from barbara to mortal Kombat called uh, that he wrote called complete freedom of movement video games is gendered play space um, where he argues that the video game console becomes kind of a virtual world that you can navigate in order to uh, replace what has happened to like the traditional American backyard, which you know is annihilated in the suburban era of the eight seventies through the the twenties or twenties through the two thousands. Um, so he's saying like you got to go in in order instead of going out, basically. Um, 
but uh, but yeah. Well, how do you feel about this? I see in your notes you you've made this uh, kind of note about spatial in a general sense. How do you feel about his use of the word spatial here as opposed to say architectural or? Well, I don't know. Um, are you talking about the one? Are you talking about uh, the note where I say, "Not sure I buy this." Yes. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, so specifically, what I'm referring to there. So, to back up a little bit, one of the moves Jenkins makes, and this is a sort of move that I'm always a little suspicious of, uh, no matter who's doing it and what the context is. Um, he says, first of all, there there are three moves here. Uh, one is he says that, uh, for instance many uh platformer games fit into what he calls and there there is no citation to any of this uh scroll games uh where he basically says that for instance look at the original super mario brothers where you move you know from left to right on a kind of a, a flat level plane this is almost as if you were unrolling a scroll right a scroll artwork which is very similar to traditional types of artwork that you find in japan uh, and none of, and again, none of this is cited. It's sort of like these, this weird series of quick homologies, um, that make sense, but also run the risk of, uh, essentializing an entire, uh, country and culture's kind of aesthetic principles. And in particular, right, he attributes this to Miyamoto, <laughs> like mm -hmm. that Miyamoto somehow like invented the idea of the scroll game, uh, based it. on his knowledge of Japanese art, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the side scroller, Michael. Right, right. It must come but, from the scroll. Right, exactly, right? Like, that's, at, of course, right? Like, that's why side-scrollers were invented. It was because of Japanese art scrolls. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I I look askance at that. But then, from that, uh, He's looking askance, everybody. Yes. Everybody watch out. <laughs> Big man coming through. He's looking askance. <laughs> um, one of the things he is trying to do... One of the things Jenkins is trying to do is talk about how uh, there are types of narrative that uh, pre-exist this very controlled and structured notion of narrative that the ludologists are kind of straw manning, um, which is true. This is true, right? Uh, but and that's one of his one of Jenkins's first moves is to be like, look, when you look at a piece of um, Japanese artwork, and specifically if it's a scroll, uh, that tells you a story in uh, sequential art. Um, it doesn't show, like, one moment in time uh, across the entire scroll, right? It shows you a progression of events. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a form of spatialized storytelling. Uh, and this uh, ties in for Jenkins with other essentially pre-modern uh, modes of storytelling um, that he cites most specifically as Homeric Epic, uh, and then uh, makes this kind of weird swerve and says that this this uh, aspect of Homeric epic, or at least pre-modern storytelling, um, is most strongly carried forward in uh, sort of the, the grand uh, genre fiction writers. So Jules Verne um, and Tolkien. Um, essentially what Jenkins is arguing is that these authors or these types of storytellers are more interested in what we now call world building than they are in you know plot and character so much um that uh and he also alleges that these authors have been sort of critically neglected or sidelined precisely because they uh have preoccupations that are other than kind of you know the bourgeois individual and character and psychology and all that precisely because they are more interested in building out a world um 
Now, I, again, I, I'm not sure I buy this because Jules Verne was very popular. Like, maybe, you know, there was um, sort of, like, some some people turning their nose up at him. But, like, Verne and Tolkien uh, were pretty well-regarded, uh, even if sort of, like, it's sort of like the people who came after them that, that created, like, the genre slum, if that makes sense. Are you telling me the Sword of Shannara is not a work of, of ex- extreme art? Well, well... <laughs> My my preferred I was gonna say my preferred my preferred Terry Brooks uh uh books are uh, it's running with the demons so I like oh, that you I don't like, like that. Uh, Magic Kingdom for sale sold no 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 oh, I those like are Michael I... Lutz ass books though <laughs> those are extreme Michael Lutz books I'll have to revisit them part of it is like I I never really liked fantasy as a genre mm. like it never uh entertained me so anyway um. To get back to this kind of move that Jenkins is doing. So we have these sort of earlier types of narrative modes, right? This uh, sort of uh, mythic kind of way of approaching narrative that is also uh, a way of world building. So you think of, say, the Odyssey um, or uh, the Iliad and how those stories aren't just about like, here are the people who went to war in Troy and here's what they did when they did the war at Troy. You get all of these digressions about who these people are, where they come from, um, how many boats they had, what the boats were called, what were the gods thinking when this, this, and this happened. Uh, there's an expansive quality, right? That's that I think uh, Jenkins is trying to reach for in, in tracing this line of the development of world building. Um, so because these uh, authors end up being more interested in thinking through worlds, so Vern is thinking through, uh, you know, well, what happens if we journey to the center of the Earth and the center of the Earth is hollow and there are still things from previous uh, eras living down there? Mm-hmm. Or Tolkien uh, reproduces um, in kind of this larger-than-life fantastical form, like the entire history of, like, early northern germanic literature um and treats it as if it were a true world history uh because they are more interested in these world building qualities uh their stories are more spatial jenkins says uh in a way that is akin to games spatiality so games in the same way that like tolkien invents uh, the legendarium of middle earth are trying to kind of imply this larger spatial world that you can then go explore. Mm-hmm. Or that is open for kind of like exploration or contemplation or what have you. You know what we call this, Michael? What do we call it? Lore. Yes, lore. Fantastic. They invented lore. I mean, but I do think that's something very interesting, right? That the, the literary form, I would say... And I think it's a full literary form at this point. The literary form that grows up with um, uh, video games is the lore wiki. That's true. And like everyone trying to fit all of all of these disparate pieces, right? Whether it's Wikipedia or the Lord of the Rings wiki or The Witcher or whatever, right? Trying to fit all of these disparate pieces of transmedia together into a coherent narrative form. Um and and I mean I think I think that spatialization makes sense to some degree, right? Because you are having to like explore this whole thing, and it all has relational capacity to one another, right? Like mm-hmm. every little piece of the Mandalorian has got to fit into the Star Wars canonical 
can, canonical <laughs> canonical <laughs> universe um and and makes sense w- within that kind of thing right and there's this kind of tone of mastery to that um that uh i think is replicated you know in certain parts of games culture too right mm-hmm. the idea that we can solve the lore of dark souls in the same way that we can solve the best builds in dark souls is pretty interesting i think it is and i like i i go along with that i guess what um i am not sure i buy in the way that jenkins makes this argument is the sort of suggestion that uh we have tapped into kind of like a a pre-modern way of thinking Mm -hmm. if that makes sense or rather i do buy that um but i am far more terrified of that prospect than he is um michael we've (laughs) never been modern (laughs) right Uh, (laughs) great great oh the listeners at home are rolling in their sandboxes you love it uh but yeah but you're more terrified of it uh why is that but is it because you know a little bit about uh the onset of modernity (laughs) well um i mean to this this is this is a whole other podcast right uh but um i am deeply skeptical of the ways that corporate culture uh has started to uh essentially commandeer this wiki writing impulse that you're you're talking Mm. about yeah um that ability or that desire to imagine a world uh, I am very, very sort of frightened and skeptical of uh, why is it that the the energies that we're putting all of our attention toward um, uh, imagining worlds that are owned by Disney? Yeah, right, right. Why, why is it, why do they get that energy from us? When as Jenkins, if Jenkins is correct, right, what he's pointing out is like, you know, this gave us the Homeric epics and the the wandering bards who could recite from memory uh, the catalog of ships and who could improvise upon those themes, add their own sort of spin, uh, you know, this this sort of, uh, you know, not corporate controlled method of storytelling. Um, what's going on there? That's that's where I uh, that's where my hackles raise, I guess. Hmm. You hear that, Jenkins? You got his hackles up. Mm-hmm. No, but I, but I, I think what you're pointing out uh, that's very helpful here is that there is this is a descriptive statement. It is mm-hmm. not a political or ethical statement, mm-hmm. and so we don't get really any analysis here of whether this is good or bad. Right. Right. And this is something that's that I, and I don't mean this in an uncharitable way at all. This is something that is shot through with Jenkins. And it's a common critique of Jenkins too, right? Um, that he's explaining to us how the world is. Um, with relatively little um, kind of uh, utopian thinking in any way, meaning mm-hmm. there's a horizon line where uh, things should be, right? Right. Um, I, I, you know, that doesn't. That's that's something rightly or wrongly gets kind of leveraged at at Jenkins a lot. It is useful for us to think with the method of spatialization here, um, and because that gets better at describing what what's actually happening in games, right? And what's what's kind of happening more broadly. But we don't really have a reason other than that's a good description. We don't have a reason why this method is like effective or evocative or produces good results or things like that, uh, or pr- produces useful results. I think uh, ultimately game design history, you know what I mean? I, I There's a reason I think why this piece became a classic to the field and i think one of those reasons is that game design caught up with it to some degree yes um i think you read this and you play through bioshock and you're like all right here we go this is 
it worked out, right? They yep. figured it out. Um, and so I think that this is almost, you know, to some degree, it's like a called shot. And um, history did kind of trend this way. Yeah, I would say more than anything we anything else we've read for for this podcast, this is the piece that actually feels like, uh, like he he said, here are some things that you could do as a designer, and then the designers actually did them. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that was like kind of a careful attention on his part, like looking to the Imagineers, right, mm-hmm. who are also people that the game designers are reading and thinking about at this time. Um, looking to other practicing game designers, right? I mean, he's he's citing Greg Kostikian, who, uh, you know, big voice in games. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly a big voice in, like, that GDC circuit, right? So I, he's paying attention to the industry actors, and this is something else that characterizes Jenkins' work across the board. He's paying attention to the industry actors to talk about what the industry is doing. Um, and then to talk about what the industry could be doing better or more efficiently. I mean, that's what spreadable media is all about. Uh, Mm -hmm. as a book i mean it really almost became a handbook for web Mm 2.0 which is interesting but anyway we've gone far afield from this we wanted to make this a shorter episode we're on track for it to be a three-hour one he says there's four modes of spatial story do you want to walk us through those michael sure thing so uh there are four modes uh they are they are going to be discussed separately, but um, one of the things that I think becomes clear as we get into them is that they overlap in all games to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, or rather, like, a game is prone to having uh, all of these modes in it in different amounts. The first uh, mode of spatial storytelling is evoking pre-existing associations, um, which we'll have a lot to say about. Two is uh, as a, uh, treating a game as a staging ground for events. Three is embedding narrative through mise-en-scene. And then four is providing tools for the player uh, and whatever systems you have running in the game for the generation of emergent narratives. So uh, the first uh, mode, which is evoking pre-existing associations, this is the one that is drawn most explicitly from uh, the imagineering uh, side of things. Uh, The idea, for instance, uh, that Disney rides do not tell like they like a disney ride cannot tell the story of the movie right like the movie has already done that and so what the the imagineers have done in disney parks is that they create rides that uh, recontextualize moments or figures or actions from those films in ways that evoke them but allow kind of the audience to insert themselves or to participate in some way uh one of the other sort of clues for this kind of thing is that a lot of disney attractions are built not uh as specific adaptations of actual films but as uh adaptations of broadly understood generic uh conventions so like pirates of the caribbean which is obviously a a film now um but began as a kind of uh, agglomeration of uh, images and feelings and uh, motifs from pirate films, which were a big thing in, like, the 30s and 40s. Like, that was its own kind of uh, booming genre. Uh, So there's that, and something like The Haunted Mansion, you know, taps into all of these tropes about haunted mansions um, and, like, all of the associations we have with that. So it becomes... Not so much a, a an adaptation of a story as it is an adaptation of a feeling that a certain type of story gives you. Um, 
uh, it's about the arrangement of familiar signifiers. One of the things he talks about, and I think uh, he, he goes against uh, Jesper Yule here, who says that if you play the, the game Star Wars, and I assume he's talking about um, in Super Star Wars for the Super NES, mm-hmm. uh, if you play the game Star Wars, you do not really know what happens in the movie Star Wars. And that's a thing that Yule brings up in order to say that, like, games are not particularly good at telling stories because the Star Wars game doesn't give you any coherent sense of what Star Wars the film is about. Jenkins responds, that's to miss the point, right? If you wanted to know the story of Star Wars as the film tells it, you would watch the film. Mm -hmm. From a game, you want a feeling of recognizing elements from the film, um, put into this new context and made operable by you or for your your kind of like gaming pleasure in various ways whether that's because you get to you know use the lightsaber or because you're shooting the blaster and you're fighting that monster that you remember that sort of thing um that's uh kind of i would say broadly speaking what's Mm -hmm. going on there it is yoda but a baby yes it's yoda but a baby um uh, the second form of storytelling, um, the treating the the sort of game space or the game as as a, a staging ground, encompasses things like cutscenes and scripted events. Right when uh, thinking it about it very literally, uh, like the game models or simulates a space in which things move and events happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, it becomes a place where you can put together what, uh, Jenkins calls micro narratives. His example here is not a video game, but the film Battleship Potemkin. <laughs> yes, of course. The micro narratives of the Odessa Steps sequence. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but the idea being that, um, in films, um, films when, not all films, obviously, but, like, films can do this thing where they show you, like, a very brief scene with uh, characters who maybe you haven't seen before, but because of how the scene is set up, because of the things that are around the characters, you get a sense for who these people are, what they want, what they're doing, and uh, you can get this very brief scene where, like, okay, this character has a goal, they're doing something, um, you know, like, it's it's almost a... Uh, uh, broad archetypal uh uh almost montage-ish kind of way of thinking yeah it's very much uh you know think of any disaster film right so yes we see the explosion or we see the tidal wave coming and we cut to uh, you know a group of diverse characters who we've never seen before their eyes go wide we get that spielberg shot right of, mm-hmm. of awe at the thing and then they're annihilated by whatever this disaster is um, and then we never think about them again, unless we see them dead on the ground, you know, a couple scenes later. Um, right. But it's that kind of thing, right? It's giving um, a sense that there is a whole world out here of people who, outside of our uh, focalized characters, that uh, are reacting to to these events or whatever. Any, watch any disaster film, and, and that's how they work, right? Roland Emmerich's entire career is predicated on this working yes. in a narrative way. Mm-hmm. Um, the third... Uh the third mode of spatial story um, is is worth noting. This is the one that Jenkins devotes the most space to. It's the one that he talks about the most. Yeah, and this is really the one, too, that has, like, the most theoretical disagreement. I think these other mm-hmm. two you could, like, fit into Ludology in some way, right? You, you could... Mm-hmm. You could make them work, but this one really is the one that's getting into the nitty gritty of like disagreement about term and uh, like what the method speaks to. But sorry, 
well, and added to that, this is the one that I think, so it's worth noting that everything that we have talked about thus far technically falls under the umbrella of environmental storytelling. Yeah. As the Imagineers have, have come up with it. However, it is this third point that I think, um, based on my experiences, you know, on social media, on Twitter, in running around in games critic circles, um, this is the point that comes to uh, encompass what people mean when they talk about environmental storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it relies on Russian formalism, so you know it's good. Uh, <laughs> the Russian formalist distinction between plot and story. And this is something that I talked about, I think, like way back in our first episode um, when we were when we read Yule. Um, Russian formalism, or at least certain strands of it, make a distinction between what they call plot, um, which is sort of the causal order of events, which is like uh, the king died and so the queen remarried. Um, and then, like, the, actually, let's let's just go ahead and do friggin' Hamlet. The okay. king died. The king died, so the queen remarried, and the prince got suspicious. Right. That's the causal order of events, um, and that is the plot. However, that is sort of baseline. What has happened? Right. Uh, the story is how the reader or the audience member is put in relation to that causal order of events, how they are allowed to understand them. So how you understand the story of Hamlet um, is the prince is upset. Why is he upset? Well, it's because the king is dead and the queen remarried, right? It it uh, transposes uh, your entry point in terms of where that narrative starts. Um, so what Jenkins goes on to kind of do from this is he says... This works in games through mise-en-scene. You can put together uh, scenes in games that tell stories. You can you can look at a scene in a game, get something from it, learn about an event, and then put that in relation to other events that you have learned or that you know about. You do the not have to get... The is abandoned. Right. There's some graffiti on that wall, and it says, lock the doors, they're here. Exactly. Michael, what happened? Oh, my God. <laughs> they, someone must have gotten in and, right. and killed everyone on the space station. Yep. Oh, my God. So, so like, that's that's what environmental storytelling comes to mean, I mm-hmm. think, is, yeah. is the, the graffiti on the wall, the, the skull next to the toilet uh, kind of... <laughs> Uh, way of way of talking about it as as it's sort of parodied in its uh, excesses or in its uh, laziness. I don't know. Um, but anyway, Jenkins makes a really uh, hard case for this being a really valid, and I, I I can't quite put my finger on why he is so interested in this particular point. Um, but I think at least partly it's because, uh, as he puts it at one point, he says that it uh, takes us uh, out of the mindset where we have to think of the story as a, a temporal structure, um, mm-hmm. which has been part of like what the, the ludologists have been harping on, which is that like without someone there pacing the narrative, telling you this story in the right way, it's just going to be crap. Um, story instead becomes what uh, Jenkins calls a body of information um, that the player kind of moves through and that you don't necessarily uh, you can't necessarily assume that the player 
move all players will move through it in the same way or that they will all notice or internalize the same types of information in the same ways so this also means that you have to have sort of like points of redundancy in order to make connections clear um so going back to like the space station example uh you find a bunch of audio logs from some person who's like i'm going to this place uh and then later on the game you find yourself in that place and then you find another corpse with another audio log next to it and and when you pick up that audio log, it's from the exact same person who uh, you had heard before saying they were going to this place. And it turns out they made it there and then they died. But they recorded one last audio log. Oh, that you know, that's not how it took this. I was actually bewildered by this uh, statement because I just didn't like I couldn't think of a video game of this era, <clears throat> of this era where I was like, oh, I've been given the same amount of information more than one time. In fact, the opposite, I feel like, is is true where it's like. In a lot of video games, but you know, previous to like Fallout, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or even in Fallout. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've been doing too much future. You can listen to our other show, Too Much Future. It's about Fallout 1 right now, but we're playing the Fallout games. That's a game where if you did not hear one person tell you something, you don't know what to do. Yep. There is no redundancy in, in this world, <laughs> like zero <laughs> amount. Right. And so that's something I thought was interesting that he pointed out because this is something that I think is really interesting in contemporary games, especially open world games, um, uh, where, you know, you in, in an open world narrative game, especially, you know, Assassin's Creed or something like that, you will run into like four or five people all telling you the exact same information, often mm-hmm. within a cutscene, just over and over again. So you don't forget what you're doing. And I and you know part of the reason for that is there's so much like different activity you can do in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, in between these kind of plot elements that you might have forgotten what the hell is going on. Um, so weirdly enough, I think this is a, a, a very cool like uh, solution in search of a problem, but a problem <laughs> that did appear. <laughs> Right. Um, which, you know, I, I don't know. I just thought that was cool. Just a couple of other points that he makes as he goes on about uh, the Maison Sin thing. Uh, he talks about, uh, well, he goes to Yule again. Um, at some point, Yule apparently claimed that you can't have flashbacks in video games, um, which uh, is just, Jing is just like, this is clearly not true, right? He actually goes to. One of the, the, the great forgotten classics of the, the like 90s, early 2000s shooter era, Clive Barker's Undying, yeah. uh, where uh, you get uh, environments that change uh, sort of their appearance depending on what point you are in in the story. And that, uh, and it's not because those environments are progressing, but because like you're in a haunted house essentially, and those environments are getting shot backward in time. Um, and so those flashbacks... Uh, like you have moved backward in time, like even though the narrative is still moving forward, um, moving backward in time is illuminating things that you have already encountered, right? It's providing reasons or rationalizations or in in the case of much of Undying, further characterization um, for the characters whose realms you're inhabiting. Uh, the yeah. um, Is the flashback section in Yule not uh, Halo Reach? <laughs> is that not the same section? <laughs> I was gonna say I think I think it is the same thing where like games can't have flashbacks, games can't have tragedy. Yeah, great. Uh, and then he also Jenkins uh, talks about melodrama, which I've talked about before. Like wh- that's how he uh, sort of um, explains professional wrestling as a type of melodrama, which is a way of talking saying like it's a story about heightened externalized emotion. Uh, and he kind of imagines um, 
this theoretical future game that really embraces melodramatic tendencies and that allows us to uh, interface and think about characters through investigation of their environments, which is Gone Home. Mm-hmm. Right. Turns out he predicts Gone Home. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, you know, I was also reading this, too, and thinking, like, every narrative game is a melodrama. Like, every yes. AAA blockbuster, I'll say, is a melodrama, right? I played Gears 5 this year. I played Death Stranding this year. Those, they're in the melodramatic form. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone is constantly externalizing their emotions. Literally... Death Stranding is about people weeping constantly about the state of the world. <laughs> like, the environment has changed to create this, like, chiral, you know, allergen thing that literally the changes in the environment, the externalized world, operate on people in such a way to make them weep uncontrollably. Like, it's it it doubles down so bad. Like, there there is, you know... Everyone is one-dimensional to their emotions, and then the world begins to reflect those emotions in all of these blockbuster games. And so, you know, I kind of wish that, like, either one, we double down on it and we make, like, the wild at heart of blockbuster <laughs> games. Or maybe we dial it back a little bit. You know, I think the closest to, like, drama in the blockbuster game space is maybe, like, The Last of Us, but it's still a melodrama. Yeah. Like, it, I mean, like it's hard... <laughs> It's hard to not have melodrama when there are like fungus zombies running around. Yeah, I would love to play a real uh, like a drama. <laughs> I guess also we should maybe we should maybe clarify exactly what melodrama means here. Um, what we're talking about when we say melodrama, and what Jenkins is talking about when he's talking about melodrama, is a uh, particular form of narrative that is, uh, as we've sort of touched on, um, very emotional and externally emotional, right? Characters are very open with their emotions. Emotions are very high. Uh, a lot of genre work, uh, I would say, actually tends toward melodrama. Mm -hmm. um, also because melodrama tends to have broadly understandable character types. So someone like the grieving widow or the man with a secret, um, the, the adorable street urchin, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're angry, you scream, if you're sad, you cry. Um, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of, the, the emotion is the thing you're seeing as opposed to, um, say in death of a salesman, <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> What's the death of a salesman main character's name? Willie Loman. Willie Loman, right, is depressed and sad. Mm -hmm. But it takes you a good 20 minutes to figure that out. Because he's depressed and sad, but you only find it out in the context of all these other things, right? Uh, mm -hmm. it, it is revealed in his characterization that he is self-annihilative. <laughs> um, right. um, he is not, like, walking around and being like, I'm so sad. I'm mad about <laughs> my family. I don't like it. But in every video game... It's like, I hope I hope my son continues my legacy. It would be really bad if he did not do that. I'm Marcus Phoenix. Ba ba ba. <laughs> I I have a dad too. Ba ba ba. <laughs> yes, so that's what we mean when we talk about melodrama. Um and let's see, do we have anything else to say kind of on this environmental storytelling uh, point? No, I don't think so. But but I mean I, I think what you were um what you were saying here, right, is really interesting that, like, this is both um, the way we think of environmental storytelling, like, on the whole now, and this is the predominant way that storytelling is done. Yep. 
I would say. I would say like, you know, dollars to donuts, the amount of time that you are spending looking at video game environments or reading video game environments and then getting information from them about that world versus exposition telling you about that world, you know, it's mm-hmm. probably two or three to one. Um, you learn a lot about, you know, just to talk about The Last of Us or whatever, right? You learn a lot about that world through the environments that you navigate, Um probably more about it than you do from people talking or, uh, you know, uh, telling you about that world, which is to say that um, Jenkins was right. Like, mm-hmm. this is a very efficient and effective way of doing things. So mo- so efficient and effective that studios have really tripled down on how they do that, right? There's a really great Robert Yang piece, maybe for Rock, Paper, Shotgun, or it might have been his blog where he's talking about um, a fire truck in The Last of Us and how it's too detailed (laughs) and you say like it's this is all in the sense of like realism in the space in order to create an environmental effect right when in reality you just got to be like there's a fire truck and it's ruined right like that's sufficient enough so i think there's even nuance within this position now uh which is really really great and there's a fourth turn yes this is the the one that's about um games as spaces which provide tools for emergent narratives and the the example like the the ur example here is the sims mm. uh because it's it's i mean the the greatest embodiment of this design principle would be just about any simulation game but the sims is a good example because it is uh like a dollhouse right something that's sort of easily explainable that's not as necessarily as um weird and abstruse and technical as as uh, the word simulation might imply but there's a whole bunch of objects uh there are a whole bunch of uh sort of player characters or like you know sims like little things moving around they are also game objects but they have um, particular capacities to interact with the other objects that you can place in their homes and uh they also have pre-programmed desires wants and needs all of this stuff then in, in the, the objects that they can interact with affect their desires wants and needs to various uh degrees and then uh, you just have all of these systems kind of like layered on top of each other. And from the interaction of those systems, you get emergent narratives of uh, this character wanted something and so did this. But it didn't work out as planned because this other character was this character wanted to get smarter. So they went outside to look at a telescope, but their neighbor had come over and was looking at the telescope. And so they could not use it. Yeah, I really like how he doubles down on, like, the narrative design of the the delimited set of objects. Mm -hmm. Like, if you could create every object on Earth and put it in The Sims, it would be, like, a big wild amount, right? Mm. But Jenkins specifically says, like, it's the the finite number of objects, right? The fact that you're going to have that fight over the telescope or the Mm -hmm. basketball thing, hoop. You can tell I'm an athlete. Uh-huh. You can tell you can tell I'm a robust outdoorsman, <laughs> um, <laughs> or or whatever, right? All of those. Uh, it, it's that these specific things create particular kinds of emergent narratives around them. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really, I, I think that's a nuance that um, often gets lost in these discussions, especially these discussions like ten years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to see that here. Yeah, and that's it. That's the article. Yeah, that's it. He's just like, here are four different types of uh, storytelling, spatial storytelling in games, and literally, then it's over. 
uh, and just to because I mentioned that this would happen at the beginning, uh, for the record, Alien Isolation has all of these. The, the ultimate end. environmental game. Yes, the ultimate environmental game. No, so, uh, yeah, just weirdly enough, and, like, to be clear, it wasn't like, I, I, I'm fairly certain uh, you had you had suggested we do this, Cameron, before I started playing Alien Isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it was, because I was already thinking about the way that Alien Isolation uses, uh, so... Let's just make this a very short, like, Michael's little review of Alien Isolation. <clears throat> First of all, I enjoyed this game. <laughs> Michael's little review. Michael's little review. Someone take that make a song out of it, please. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alien Alien Isolation 2014 uh, just came out on Nintendo Switch, though, so I played it. Um, it's a good game. Uh I, I, I say good, and I mean that in a very specific way, because it's not like a game that I'm recommending everyone pick up, uh, because there is some barrier to entry. One is that it's very hard, uh, but if you are pulled along by the aesthetics of the Alien franchise and the Alien universe like I am, then you might enjoy this game quite a bit. Now, one of the problems with the Alien franchise, and when I say the Alien franchise, I mean, you know, the... The, the four alien films, I'm, I'm excluding Prometheus here in Alien vs. Predator, um, but one of the things that gets remarked on about these movies is that they all have the same plot, which is true, right? There are some people in a place, uh, an alien gets encountered, it should not be there, it proceeds to kill everyone until some number of the people survive. Mm-hmm. That is the plot of every Alien film. It is also the plot of Alien Isolation. The story of Alien Isolation is actually extremely boring. If you have seen an Alien movie, you know exactly where this uh, story... Like, in terms of narrative events, you know exactly how this is going to go. You know what's going on, right? You know how xenomorphs work. However, what Alien Isolation does really well is it takes the set design from the films and it uh, makes those spaces into things that you can explore in the game. And it puts them in relation to each other in the ways that uh, the films also do, but um, in a kind of uh, juxtaposed way. Because because film is a film, because you're watching uh, you know a series of images... Uh, you see the very clean, bright interior of uh, the Nostromo in the first Alien film. And then you see kind of the grungier, more industrial, darker, um, clankier, uh, un- like underbody of the ship where they keep all of their equipment. Um, and then you see the weird biomechanical uh, derelict ship where they find the alien eggs. The film sets up all of these... Uh, sort of juxtapositions between different architectural styles and without really pushing you to make these connections draws a lot of parallels between them, right? So if you watch the Alien films closely, you will see how even though the interior of the Nostromo is sort of brightly lit um, and clean, it has a lot of design elements in common with its sort of grosser underbelly. Um, A lot of the same sort of like pipes, molding, things like that. Uh, and then when you get to the alien derelict ship, it has very, very similar types of design, but it mixes uh, sort of the interior Nostromo and the underbelly of the Nostromo. This is all like random alien nerd stuff, but I'm laying it out here because the experience I had playing Isolation was incredible because 
it puts these spaces together in a way that allows you to move between them and notice those connections in ways that are sort of startlingly relevant to the themes of like the themes of the film right which is like uh pulling at this line between like the alien right the strange and the other and sort of the becoming of the self right the idea that the company that is uh ostensibly made up of humans is reaching toward uh through androids and through wanting to monetize the alien uh something something that is beyond human right that it is somehow becoming humans becoming inhuman uh the alien isolation game uh does a lot of really cool things where uh it seems to me that the level designers knew that uh, the the pipes that you could find in, in the ventilation shafts when you're crawling around, if you come around a corner in just the right way, that pipe that is sort of curving around the other corner looks a lot like the head of the xenomorph, right? And it gives you that moment of like, oh shit, it's down here, right? Mm. Or um, when you're waiting on an elevator to come and you hear the the big industrial levers clanking and you hear, like, some steam go off, like a, a steam valve, like, hisses, it sounds a lot like how the alien sounds when it's walking around the level hunting you. And so you have that moment of panic. Uh, the Quite literally, right, in, in, in the way that Jenkins is talking about, the game uses the architecture of of the alien films in order to give you this very interesting experience of of the idea right the the affect of the alien franchise um by making quite sort of front and center these connections between architecture and bodies and feelings and anxieties like palpable Hmm. so that's really neat but not good enough to buy well, I would say buy it, because it's pretty cheap on the Switch. There you go. Um, and I think it's cheap on other consoles now. I was just say, like, keep in mind that it is, it is like, punishingly hard. That has nothing to do with Jenkins. It's just, it is a bizarrely hard game. That's Henry Jenkins' fifth point. None of this matters if it's not punishingly hard. <laughs> like, I want to see not- Henry Jenkins double down on, like, Souls Bro toxic right. gamer culture oh, God. <laughs> to, to be like i'm sorry if you did if you beat it with the rewind function it's not a real environmental <laughs> storytelling <I'm> sorry <laughs> he would never do that he's he's a, no. he, I've, I've met him jenkins before he's a very nice man yeah, he seems very nice um but yeah no so that's one of the things like literally that alien isolation does with architecture and also just to talk about uh the other types of narrative spaces. Uh, of course, it has Maison Sen because it's coming out of this tradition of immersive sims from like System Shock 2, which we've kind of obliquely been alluding to this entire time, where you go into a room and you find a corpse and like then you find the audio log next to the corpse and you find out how that person who recorded the audio log became the corpse. Um, and there are also simulationist aspects where uh, there are various moving pieces in a level and you can interact with them like there are other survivors on the space station and a lot of the time they want to shoot you for some reason and when they do that the alien hears them and gets really angry and so it will come down and kill them because the alien is kind of in most of the levels is is there right it's kind of like hiding in the background of the level and waiting for you to make enough noise to where the game can track you down um, yeah, so you get you, kind of these emergent stories. Have you read anything about the design of the alien AI in that game? I've read a, a little bit. Um, 
what do you have in mind? What are you thinking of? Oh, there's just like a cool article from a few years back or, uh, about how it is. Uh, they're basically it, it's an AI that is that has partial information about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is It is realistically reacting to stimuli in that way because it doesn't have perfect information and it doesn't have access to perfect information um, because I, I think in the initial design it did. It was more of a traditional game AI, and so it was hyper-efficient at murdering people. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had to make it, to, to basically make it less good, they had yeah. to do all kinds of interesting AI design things. There's maybe a Kotaku article or a Polygon article about it from a few years ago. Well, that's really fascinating because yeah. it is still it is still hyper efficient at murdering you. Uh, but that's mostly because like the second it knows you're there, you are done for. <laughs> uh, but it does result in a lot of I it very clearly like has to hunt. And I, so that is interesting that it does genuinely have partial information because um, it did feel like. You know, I I would do things that would alert this AI. It would start patrolling because um, it's also it's largely a stealth game. Mm-hmm. So it would start patrolling and I would just have to, like, hide in a closet until it decided it was bored and left. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. The, the Metal Gear Solid 2 enemy version of a stealth game. <laughs> well, he came in here. And there's only one locker. I don't know. Right. And you can actually, you can see, right, even as I'm describing this game, how the narratives overlap, because, like, the actual plot, of course, of the store, of, of the game is what I just said. Someone finds an alien and then it starts murdering people until some people survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, the story of playing the game is, I was in a room, I opened a door much more loudly than I should have, and then I heard the alien jump down from a vent somewhere in an adjacent hallway, and then I had to hide for ten minutes while it did its rounds. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds like my exact game experience. I would love to have. Right, everyone loves to hide in a closet for ten minutes. Uh, okay, looks like we got some reader mail. We do. Okay, let's move into reader mail. Little chimes to to show that we've shifted. Bing a ding 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 ding, ring a ding a ding ding do. There you go. Uh, shall I read this one to you, Cameron? Sure, if you want to. All right. So here's our first bit of reader mail. Hello. I'm not involved with game studies, but with philosophy in general, and find your podcast fantastic. Thank you for doing it. My question is whether there is a connection between game studies and game theory, um, then parentheses, when economic studies situations uh, where rational actors make decisions. Well, where rational actors make decisions. Oh, yes, where yeah, rational just, actors make decisions. Just very uh, uh, key term. Yes. Uh, the disciplines seem obviously very different approaches to games, and yet I can't help but think that there must be a relation, and I'm wondering whether it's hostile or indifferent, or maybe some people in game studies have taken up game theory as a valuable tool. I really enjoy the long discussions of books. Thank you all for your efforts, Inigo. So, Thank uh, you for your reader mail, Inigo. Yes. Um, uh, no. There's that's, n- that's your answer to the question? There's very little connection. And the reason, I think, for that is that game theory, uh, one, cares very little about actual games and cares more about uh, ideal situations. Uh, two, rational actors don't exist. That's just a statement. Uh, rational actor theory is, is uh, incomplete as a simulation of human behavior. Um, and, but, but three, the more real answer is that uh, I think... 
I don't think that they have much to say to one another because game theory really is is about mathematics um, more than it is about anything else. And it's mm-hmm. not just a beautiful mind telling me that, um, <laughs> but it really is about solving uh, complex problems in a general sense. Yeah. Um, and uh, game studies doesn't really care about that. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. Um, I would say, I don't know how this is for you, Cameron, probably not as much because you're interacting with other game scholars, but uh, when people who are literature scholars find out that I do game studies, they very often assume that I have some sort of familiarity with game theory. No, it happens to me all the time, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I think it happens to anyone who studies games at all in the world. We get this question quite a bit. Okay, yeah. So And so I have to explain. It's like, I really... No, <laughs> uh, like the the sort of theoretical problems of game theory are not quite what I am interested in when I say I do game studies. Yes, I mean, that's basically the exact answer I just gave is my yeah. gloss to everyone who asks me this question all the time. They are they are um, they are methodologies. And to say that game studies is one methodology is making a monolith out of something that isn't. But. You know, it's a big, big wide world, but game studies in general is looking at at way much different problems and much different solutions to problems than game theory is. Um, Game theory uh, has some adherence. Um, I'm I'm not one of them, but they tend not to speak to one another. I'm sure there's a couple game studies people who have written about game theory in a broad sense, but uh, I'm I'm not reading those books. That's not, you know, that's not where I, I am at. Okay. Thank you for your well, fan mail, Inigo. Mm-hmm. Or Inigo. There's a there's a uh yeah, tilde over the end. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I I have a hard time with it. <laughs> uh then our second piece of reader mail uh says, "Howdy, howdy, howdy all. No questions here." Great. Uh, Just writing in to say that I thoroughly enjoy your program. Was genuinely gobsmacked to hear you all talk about Kenyon, my alma mater, having employed a game studies scholar. This is a reference to, um, I'm assuming, uh, James Hans, uh, who was a a professor at Kenyon, professor of English at Kenyon, I think, um, Mm -hmm. when he published Play of the World. Um, the, The letter writer continues, would have been nice to know about when I was writing my thesis on uh, Metal Gear Solid 5. It was a very bad paper. Let's not dwell on it. I'm sure his writings would have helped me out greatly. Also, for the record, the Oberlin comparison very much holds true to the point where many professors and students alike were very annoyed by it. This is this was me explaining <laughs> like what Kenyon was uh, and making the comp- like uh, among the sea of small uh, Midwestern liberal arts colleges. Um, what can you do? Hope y'all are having fun prepping for the next episode. I enjoy y'all's cast very much and it's taught me a fool a great deal about games and the way that i think about them have a nice week a liam um i am not sure if i pronounced your name correctly if i have not i am very sorry uh it could be like uh, I... elam from uh odd world abe's odyssey okay the friendly a liam or elam um, i don't know okay but thanks so much for your mail uh i love the letters that don't have any questions because they're the easiest to respond to it, the, the, it's the best one. Michael, if someone wanted to send in their own reader mail, where would they do that? Uh, well, if you want to come at us with a question or just a general nice comment where you tell us that we have uh, done cool work and that you appreciate it because we very much like that, you can email us uh, at games studies stud- or actually I should say game studies study buddies all one word at gmail.com. 
And if you really want to show us your uh, happiness, you can go to rangetouch. Or uh, well, you can go to rangetouch.com. You can also go to patreon.com slash rangetouch in order to support us for uh, a few bucks a month. Um, it's very helpful. It really, really works out for us. It uh, At $3 a month, you get access to our notes. At $5 a month, you get uh, access to a little secret project I've been working on. But... Um, yeah, you know what? Just think about, you know, if you buy us a cup of coffee a month, it's helping us out in a significant real way. The costs of this are not zero. We gotta buy these books, we gotta do this stuff. Uh, we gotta compensate the people that we work with. Um, and so the money gets spent in in uh, real and uh, useful ways. Um, so uh, think of, if you like the show, think about supporting. If you, if you got a good hour and a half out of this episode, think about buying us a cup of coffee this month. You know, it would be a helpful thing to do. Michael, how do you feel about this Henry Jenkins essay now that we are done? Uh, I think it's pretty good. I agree. I think it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I like it. I think it's worth going back to. I think it's a good. I, if I were putting together a syllabus, I'd put this thing on it. I would, too. I should definitely cite it more in my game writing in the future. I should, too. Agreed. Um, okay. Next episode, we are doing... Well, actually, well, next episode, we're doing Coin-Operated Americans by Carly Kasurik. That'll be in January. Michael, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Warren is Dead. And do you have anything to plug? I do not. Great. Uh, you can find me on the internet at C. Kunzelman. You can get all the updates from Range Touch by following at Range Touch on Twitter. You can go to rangetouch.com to find out about all of our other shows. Uh, you can go to youtube.com slash rangetouch to see Michael and my, uh, my Michael and I's our uh, other <laughs> other show um, uh, Too Much Future, which is about the Fallout games, which we talked about a little bit earlier and a bunch of other stuff too. Um, I stream regularly. The archives go up on YouTube. Blah, 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 blah. Hit that subscribe button on there. Um, if you like the show and you have enjoyed it and you're listening to it on a platform that has a rating system, say iTunes, uh, give us that five-star review. That legitimately does help. It gets us in front of more people. Uh, we don't spend any money on advertising, and so word of mouth is the way to go. If you like the show, rate it and then tell people about it, please. Literally, if yes. you tell a thousand people about it and only one person listens to it, there's still one more listener than we had before, which is a significant uh, increase for us. So um, thanks for listening and I hope you had a good holiday and uh, uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next one. Later. Later.